How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. You're listening to the Cinema Sci-Show Podcast, episode 240. You know what I feel like, Zeke? What do you feel like? I feel like quoting Dwight Schrute. Dwight Schrute? Because I know everything about film. I've seen over 240 of them. <laughs> Is that actually what he says? That's actually what he said. Wow. I look. I, I Googled it. I was like, I want to quote something relative to the episode name. Okay. Because I think it's better than me just every week being like, that's a lot of episodes. And um, and that was the first thing that came out was Dwight Schrute's quote. And I was like, that's absolutely phenomenal. There you go. I love it. The alternative, and I'm going to tell people this. This is something actually Andy, who we had on the show last week, of course, to talk about the castle. Check it out. It's Friend good. of the show. Friend of the show. Andy Newcomb. Who uh, helped us make the longest episode of the entire show. Yeah. After Barbie. We've been on a streak lately. Yeah. <laughs> really long episodes. We're asking a lot of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and we expect full attention Absolutely. from all of them. Uh, but no, he, he showed me a website a few weeks ago called Play Phrase, where you can, you go on it and it's just a bunch of film clips ready to go and you type a quote. So say like, I type, get the hell out of there. And it just plays a bunch of clips of get the hell out of it from different films. That's pretty cool. And it's really cool. It's so I'm like, that's great. If you're writing and you want like to hide some cool film Easter eggs in mm. there, look up some quotes, see where they come from. It's interesting. I like that. It was cool. I wanted to give that to everyone. Yeah, that was like a free fun fact. It was. <laughs> but speaking of fun facts, Jake, do you have any fun facts from Film of the Week, The French Connection? I do. Now, th- there's a lot we can get into with this film. There's a lot of interesting behind the scenes context and in particular with its director of course we're doing the uh director's corner today for the late william freakton and um i actually wanted to draw attention to a couple of other people on the crew there's a lot of firsts in this crew i was looking it up so don illies this was his first credited score film score Mm. uh, which is surprising because it's pretty excellent and you've also got owen rosman for his first credit as a cinematographer so wow Pretty, I think there's a very instrumental aspects to this film. That is. So it's crazy that that's like their first. I mean, I'm sure they've done shorts and experts in their field in one way or another. I'm sure, but like this is a great way to, you know, if you want to scrub earlier <laughs> things from your IMDb page and this is your number one credit, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good starting point. Good cleanser. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I was like, wow, very well, well done to them. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, spe- speaking of William Friedkin and, yes. and some of the, the other crew that were involved in this film, I think one thing that sticks out when you watch this film is a scene that sort of uh, seems throwaway at first, but then has a quick callback, which makes you think that there's significance to it. And it's mm. when Hackman and Schneider are in the car together, and Hackman throws the straw hat into Schneider's face, which then gets thrown into the back of the car. Yes. Um, seems like nothing, but then... Free, you know, Friedkin's actually decided to call back to it, and then he sits on it for a good ten, you know, a good five, six seconds. Mm, it's very be. prominent, yeah, for yeah. the edit specifically. So you wonder why the significance of this shot? Well, the significance of the straw hat being tossed onto the shelf of the rear window in Doyle and Russo's car was that at the time it was a universal signal in New York City uh, that the undercover cops in the car were on duty. So mm. I find that quite interesting. Why would you want to give that away? I was just like. <laughs> My follow-up is, that's an interesting uh, tidbit, but also begs the question that why would anyone ever do that if it gives away that they're on duty? Um, is, it, is it like code for other police cops, officers? Potentially. Maybe it's like in, in-house 
baseball language. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about sort of the gritty realism that this film goes mm, for from the get go. Very much um, so. And, and sort of one of the things that uh, sort of it focuses more on the police operation aspect, which we can sort of draw parallels, even films we've covered on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, before we jump into that, Jake, what have you watched in the last week? Um, can I be honest with you? Like, yeah. Can I be truthfully? You can always honest? be truthful. Oh, I'm glad. Honest. I'm glad. I watched very little this past week. <laughs> Probably then that's still a little bit more than me. That, oh. <laughs> oh no! Well, I, I wanted to give a shout out to good old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because I just went in a bit of a rabbit hole recently. Okay, like I, I do that every few years. I love the Ninja Turtles, but I don't I don't love them in the same way that um, well I, I can't think of an example on top of my head. Spider Man. So I guess, but even then, like you go through phases where you're like really into something again for a few weeks or a month, and then you sort of bounce yeah. back out. I guess, I, I guess, like the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul universe. I'm, I'm never not sort of yeah on that train. I, guess oh, I thought you were good... talking about like as a child. Like... Oh no, 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 I just mean like every couple of years that you go back through like your Ninja Turtles phase, or um, I know what you mean, but in terms of childhood, I mean I, Ninja I... Turtles was important to my childhood. Yeah. Absolutely, I thought it was more like a childhood like going through phases. Gotcha. No, no, no. I mean like even in, in adulthood. Oh. Where you kind of go through another month of like, oh man, like I really love this, and you kind of go for the rabbit hole, and, and I did that for Ninja Turtles recently, the 2003 show specifically because I like. Lo- did you watch it at all? Yeah, it was kind of like one of those things that would appear on toasted TV. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally, I always remember though that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and this is the most like you had to be in Australia at the time okay. conversation, but. Because of the way the runtime would work and school would work, is you would I was actually just thinking about this. Yeah, you would only be able to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles if you were sick from school because it was in the eight to eight thirty slot. Right. And by then you had to bounce. You had to go. To... Yeah. Well, you had to bounce by the time it hit about seven forty-five, seven fifty, really. Mm. Um, which meant um, I got to see a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh and a lot of uh, Pokemon. Really, they were the two that were on in that right. earlier slot. And then I think that got replaced occasionally. I think Naruto used to run occasionally okay. early at the English dub. There was a huge... I went through a One Piece phase, believe it or not. And yeah. it was thanks to, I guess, Toasted TV. Yeah, Naruto was mine. Right. But, um, Yu-Gi-Oh! Nice. has always been the one I always come back to. And it's so funny because it's so cheesy and terrible. But every time I come back to it, <laughs> even as a grown adult, I've watched like the first three seasons, like maybe two or three times because I just find them... I just I don't know why. Yeah. I just love this character that always finds a way to win. Despite <laughs> always... <laughs> and I, I did lo- I still love Pokemon. I think it, oh, yeah, the Pokemon's earlier great. seasons of Pokemon are just immaculate. And well, I think everyone cried a little when Ash won because it just feels like you. Yeah. That was very recently, wasn't it? It was the start of the year. Yeah, and we, we of course, covered the first movie in yeah. celebration of Ash's long, long uh, anticipated victory. That's such a great <laughs> idea for an episode. We come up with good uh, good ideas occasionally. No, it was fun. I love covering animated films. It's funny because I just updated our IMDb page. I just added a few more trivia facts in there. Mm. And one of them was all the animated films we've done on the show. I think it's about 10. And Pokemon, the first movie, is indeed one of those 10. Yeah. Be really not. We're probably due to visit another Studio Ghibli film. That's probably yeah. probably due for that. And it's sad because Spirited Away is still the only one I've seen, which is tragic. Yeah. So that's that's probably due worth a look. Um, but so yeah. you just went on a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I, I did, and it's funny you mentioned that it was like the eight to eight thirty. I couldn't remember that, but 
the fact that I'm like, I could have swore that I watched it all the time. I probably did in maybe when it was an earlier time slot, but I have all the DVDs. Mm. Like I have a bunch of, not all of them. Cause I found that some of them are incredibly rare. Yeah. Like $500 on eBay rare. Wow. And I don't, I don't think I have those DVDs, unfortunately. I mean, <laughs> to go back to the, the, the blockbuster era, that mm. was like, that was one of the main things you would like loan out at a blockbuster would be oh, like yeah. a, like, you know, and they weren't even like seasons of shows back then. They were like six episodes and like the little, you would take multiple DVDs to make up a season sort yeah, of box yeah. sets. And I realized through this recent rabbit hole, I've been watching YouTubers who've done like four hour deep dives into the show and the, the DVDs and the games. I, I, I think I have played every single PS2 Ninja Turtles game because they were going through the list and I was like, oh, I do remember that. Oh, I do remember that. So I must have played all of them. But uh, they were saying, like, they did that annoying thing for Ninja Turtles, and you're right, for a bunch of these animated shows, mm. is they put, like, three or four episodes on each disc so they could sell, like, eight DVDs per season. It's insane. That's wild. And, um, hey, they, they got away with it. And we were, as children, we were, we were just used to it. So, you know, That's fair cool. play from them. But, yeah, um, it, it's interesting because I've definitely seen the first two seasons the first season is near and dear to my heart. And it's actually rewatching part of it. I was like, this is so good. Like all the stuff that first off, they have like the one, two punch structure in the first season where they defeat shredder in the first, like 12 episodes. And then they have a few sort of side story episodes before he comes back and kicks the shit out of all of them. And it's like, they all injured. Leonardo nearly dies. April's apartment blows up. It's, it's straight up like Empire Strikes Back level downer ending. Yeah. Before they get to the end of the season where they get their strike back, Return of the Jedi, if you will. And it's so satisfying. It's it's phenomenal. And and I, I was so curious by all the sci-fi elements they introduced after the first season mm. that I never quite... It just got too hard to get the DVDs. I would go to Jumbo to get a lot of those Ninja Turtle DVDs. And season two is definitely where like I have vague memories of the end of season two. Mm. So I obviously saw them... And then I also have DVDs of, of Fast Forward, which was like the, the fifth or sixth season. That's the one I remember the most yeah. in that 8 to 8.30 uh, mm. slot. But it's it's so funny you bring that stuff up because I could say the same thing about... I think I... When we were like sort of in that right slot, I yep. think they were at Gen 4 for Pokemon. So it was like... Yeah. That was particular The Sinnoh sort of region story was the one that was mostly on the TV. And, and then with Yu-Gi-Oh, they'd actually... Pretty much, they did GX mostly on TV. Oh, okay, yeah. At that point, which is the second generation of stuff, but you can go back and watch like sort of the original stuff quite easily. I remember renting the original lot. And Naruto, it's like the first because at that time, I think the English dub was only like the first maybe hundred episodes oh, or okay. something like that. Yeah. Because One Piece had been around a lot longer. Mm. Isn't that st- it's still going, isn't it? Isn't that the whole? Is it? A pro- yeah. Wow. Oh, was like and they're doing the Netflix live action thing, which. Has gotten, isn't it the most money they've spent on a Netflix project or is that close to it? Yeah, it's a, it's wow. a lot of money. That's crazy. I get, yeah, I do feel like I heard that, so you're probably right. Um, which probably would be the Irishman, right? That's the one that they spent the most. Or was it Stranger Things? Probably be a Stranger Things. Oh, Stranger Things is probably up there now. Yeah. Is but, there a difference between the show shows and then feature films? I mean, there would be, I guess. But. Very, it's, yeah. I mean, the Cowboy, I actually thought the Cowboy Bebop adaptation of mm. that the manga not that i've seen it but i thought it was a perfectly fine show i thought it was good yeah. didn't get renewed for season two um because huh? people didn't like it so that's kind of th- like me with the twisted metal show it's like i have so little familiarity with the source material and i'm like oh this is great i enjoyed it yeah <laughs> although to be fair it didn't have like a backlash 
I mean, no. the general conception is that it's fine or good, the show. So yeah. it's a little different. I'm really curious if that gets a second season, though. It would be interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's so strange. Even like The Boys getting its own spin off show. and, and Yeah. On... Which is, it's a clever idea. Yeah. This is Gen, Gen V. Gen V. Yeah, Gen V. It's like a That's clever. teenage. I think it's like a teenage version of it's it. It's like Sky High meets The Boys. Yeah. I imagine See, that this. sounds great. I love that's a great pitch right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, yeah, I haven't really watched anything other than the film of the week. Mm. Um, it's just been a busy, busy couple of weeks. Um, that's it. It's it. Yeah, it's sometimes it's tough. You know, you get home from work and you're just tired and you just want to watch something that's like not going to be too like energy consuming. Sure. And some, and some films require that energy. Yeah. But I do always try and watch more films. So I'll make an effort in the next week. No, that, that's fair enough. I, I relate to that as well in the sense that, well, not even for myself personally, but like um, me and Kirsty are right on the very tail end of Better Call Soul because mm. she's watching it for the first time. I, it, we're kind of at the year anniversary of the finale, so it was kind of this interesting time where I'm time. reminiscing from a year ago when the show ended and we've only got two episodes left between the two of us. So we're well into the post-Breaking Bad timeline of the show now, which is awesome because we can talk about so many of these mm. arcs and now being fully completed um but it's funny because i i said i'm like okay we definitely have to go for like a lighter palleted show after this because i i just know it's like it can get way too much at times um and like she she's very much like that like she's very sensitive to to noise so shows and movies with a lot of gunfire kind of a big I'm, I'm going to try and avoid those in terms of recommendations and but then i accidentally got her really interested in watching the exorcist <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, why did I do that? <laughs> well, Man. I shouldn't have mentioned it. Because uh, I talked about how like scary it was in the context of, of 1973. And now she's like, oh, can't be that scary, can it? And I'm like, yeah, but you don't like these kinds of movies. Yeah. <laughs> what have I done, Z? What have you done? Uh, so we'll, we'll find out. Of course, I was talking in context about the the excellent director who we'll get into in a minute, but... Yeah, um, no, so but by this time next week, we would have definitely finished uh, Better Call Saul and I would have completed my complete revisit of the entire universe. Well, I mean, if you're looking for a lighter show, I have been agonizingly slowly moving mm. through the first season of Shit's Creek, which I've probably brought oh, up maybe four or five nice. times over the... I got the box set over there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're close to the end of season one. We watched a couple nice. episodes the other day, but it's a funny show. Mm. It just... We, yeah, it just has been like such a slow pace, which I, I don't hate because I like it's something you can pick up and drop off quite easily as sure. a show. Because um, a lot of the episodes, at least in the early seasons, are self-contained. So, yeah, it's a good fun show. It's a good mm. light show if you're looking yeah, for something like that. Yeah, it could be something like that. Yeah, but hey, um, do you have any career updates then, Jake? If you want to talk about, or yeah, do we want to well, move into the film well, of the week? We can, it's been a few weeks since we've actually talked about the latest on skin and blister i guess but it's just it's right at the tail end of post-production so we've been doing the foley and the mm. not so much adr but because because we're not we're adding lines we're not replacing lines necessarily so we found a couple of instances where we could squeeze in an extra n- nothing crazy you know like oh this explains the whole story much better just little details in the in the soundtrack which i like so we're doing all of that and the vfx is getting there so it's a lot of like rain um keying a lot of removing mics and things like that um we'll see it's kind of at that stage where the rain 
it's it's more additive. It's not like we're doing a shot that has no rain and then adding rain entirely for VFX. It's mostly just every now and then there's a shot. It's like, oh, that could probably look a bit more mm. intense and maybe let's layer in a mask of, of rain that you can get off Shutterstock and things like that. So I have no idea if any of those will even survive because if they don't look great, then obviously it's not worth yeah. doing those shots. But um, all the other stuff in terms of removing cables and mics and things like that, have, the results are pretty darn good. So I'm excited about that. I want to thank... So we we got to give a shout-out to friend of the show, Bethany, of course, is one of the two leading actors in mm. Skin and Blister. Uh, she's off to London next week. Wow. Very exciting for a year. So we wish her the best, but I had to go over to get a couple of lines, just you know, just in case. And uh, I want to thank her mum, Doss, for uh, lending me some mics. You can see that over there, Zeke. There's some new microphones that she just gifted to me out of the kindness of her heart. Yeah, they're right there. Which I actually haven't really had a good. I'm look not gonna at lie, yet. I'm looking at them and I, it's gifted you. Gifted me, yeah. Like gifted you. She like, said she. They're, yours, she said they're she, now your they're property. They're mine. They're mine. On the record, she said she couldn't sell them, and I repeatedly asked, "Are you sure? Are you sure?" And she was like, "No, it's all good." Okay. So I wanted to shout out to Doss. Well, very. <laughs> I'm sure they will get use at some yeah, point. Yeah, I know. We're gonna have to take a look and see how we can incorporate into this show. Excellent. Well, then it is Very time exciting. for us to move into our film of the week and, of course, latest director's corner. Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're talking about William Freakton's The French Connection. I, I know the deal hasn't gone down. I, I, I know it hasn't. I can, I can feel it. I'm dead certain. Last time you're dead certain, we went up a dead cop. All right, let's hit him. Hit him! <laughs> All right, nobody move. Put your hands in the air. The stakeout. Oh, it's me, it's me. The payoff. Chase. Don't stop. Hey, Coke, you all right? There are no rules and no holds barred when Popeye cuts loose. Tough narcotics detective Popeye Doyle is in hot pursuit of a suave French drug dealer who may be the key to a huge heroin smuggling operation. But what if he's not? Also, Roy Schneider's there. Yes. It took me a little, an embarrassing amount of time to realize, like, oh, it's from Jaws. Yeah. He's, that's where I've seen that face before. It took uh, longer than it should have. Oh, really? For someone who's a, a film expert and has seen more than 240 yeah. of them. but Pre-Jaws, really. Yeah, that's true. That is, he is definitely younger in this. Yeah. Um, this was my first Gene Hackman film, not including Ants. His famous uh, appearance in Ants. Who's he in Ants? I don't know. I just noticed that. I can find out. Oh, I think he's the bad guy. Oh, like the antagonist. Oh, that makes sense. Like Stallone's the best friend. Yeah, Woody he's Allen's, General Ma- yeah. Mandible. Mandible. He's the bad, for the greater the colony. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's yeah, it's, that's him doing his French connection. The saddest part is I probably know more <laughs> quotes from ants than I do from a bug's life. 
Fair enough. Well, you, you probably watched it more. I probably did watch Ants more. I think I enjoyed Ants more. And I, now- reckon, I reckon if we both go back and do the Ants Bugs Life debate, which I, I reckon we're going to appreciate Ants for being a bit more bizarre and a bit more weird than a Bugs Life. I also think it has a... They both have very... They actually both kind of have similar messages, but do it slightly different ways. Yeah. It's remarkable, though, because you've got, like, a film that's Disney Pixar, and then you've got Woody Allen, Sylvester Stallone, and Gene Hackman. <laughs> and you're kind of like... You say those names out loud, and you're like, what movie is this? Yeah. Like, they're not kids' actors. They were still trying to figure out the whole, like... You know, the Robin Williams in an animated film sort of... That whole thing yeah. of like, how do we mark an animated film to adults and kids? Just give them like recognizable casts. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's very and seventies is it's very a very seventies cast. Ants, yeah, but even Ants <laughs> is like quite Woody Allen esque yeah. in its oh, like mumble core, so. like like he's guys stuttering got performance. Yeah, he's got like perpetual um, existential crises going on. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very odd film. But yeah, look, I'll admit, I have seen Gene Hackman in a couple of things. I've actually seen more back-end career Gene Hackman okay. stuff, obviously. The Royal Tenenbaums, which oh, might, uh, from Wes nice. Anderson, which might, uh, we might uh, relate something. Hmm. But um, that's actually, I was surprised. So, one, you know, obviously Friedkin passed away in the last week. Very sad. Yes. But I was like, surely Gene Hackman is like, passed away but i didn't remember he's still alive yeah wow 1930s born he's 93 so fair bump gene hackman he did retire from acting in 2004 okay with tenenbaums being his second last film ever wow so good not a bad uh not a bad send-off but i'm glad to hear he actually got a a decent amount of rest (laughs) nearly 20 years of rest so far and still still kicking you say excellent isn't it funny though because like in this film I guess that makes him that makes him forty one in this film. Mm. Talk about a, a late bloomer. I can see it. I can see it. I mean, it's still kind of crazy to think because this film is fifty two years old, so yeah, it's, it's wow. wild to think about. Um, well, it's interesting because I was watching this from the perspective of okay, early seventies, and there's it's not quite Easy Rider, but there is a lot in this film that did feel. It kind of fit, I could see it being quite taboo for its age, and obviously we're talking about the director who did The Exorcist just two years ago. Talk about taboo and and shaking your audience to a core, and we can talk about that in a bit. That I think they're very, very, very different films, though The Exorcist and The French mm. Connection. But in terms of it coming in the post Hayes Code era of Hollywood, you're in the '70s, so you know you're getting your Coppolas and your Lucases and your Scorseses and Spielbergs and whatnot. So it's you're kind of getting back into an auteur period of Hollywood that we've talked about many times in the show, of course. But I, watching this, I kind of, I got got all those elements. You know, the flashes of violence in there, the fact that there are innocent bystanders that are are shot and sniped and murdered and the bloody bodies in the car. And, like, there's a lot of that stuff. Um, But what I got more from this film, having never seen it before, is is, wow, like, this is Cinema Verite 101. Mm. Like, this is straight up just a gritty, doco-style, very scopophilic camera work, not very plot-heavy, not a lot of character arcs, if any, really. It's kind of just this film sort of ends on a downer note. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but I, it wasn't quite the film as I was expecting it to be, but in a really good way. Was it? This was the first time you've seen it too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. And you know, it's. I think you're really encapsulating sort of what the film is sort of saying. I I did allude in the first half of the show. I was like, this is one of those cop films that is really trying to put an emphasis on sort of the process of the operation, mm. the idea of. I mean, these are two undercover cops. Yeah. Quotations. <laughs> who. Um, we see a vast majority of the film are just stalking people. Yeah, um, which I, I adored. Yeah. I love like, that, that. Like, it's so simple in so many ways. Yeah. And what's funny is that I, I grabbed this quote when, when William Freakton did the... He did, like, a talk at the Oscars, and it's on their YouTube channel. And it's this is an interesting quote I pulled from him where he said the only reason he added the car chase sequence which we will talk about. I mean, it was, it was considered the greatest car chase scene of all time, which it's is pretty epic. That's what a lot of people were quoting when he passed away less than two weeks ago. Mm. And um, his response to the fact that it was there at all was because the film would otherwise be, quote, nothing but a police surveillance picture, and that's like watching paint dry. <laughs> which is bizarre that he's saying that about his own film, which, other than one scene, self-proclaimed is this paint trying yeah. film and yet I was so intensely riveted by it because the stakes they're not overly evident like the the no we, we don't see the fallout of the heroin trade you know mm. there's not a there's not a moment where Doyle and Russo are moving, moving through like a slums where we see yeah. needles and illicit substances everywhere mm. It's all sort of grey. And in fact, we don't really see much showcase of, of the drugs throughout the film. It's a lot of conversations and mm. stuff. And um, apart from a scene where a scientist is sampling the potency of the, the purity right. of the, the heroin. And um, it doesn't have like sort of the, the drug paraphernalia, something like Breaking Bad does, where sure. it, it there are times where it's deliberately trying to romanticise it. And... and um, I mean, even in Breaking Bad, we don't really see well, I, I the would, effect of the drugs excessively. I would, I would say it. There's the cinematography romanticizes the process of cooking the mm. drugs, in that it is it, it it reduces it down to like the the beauty of like the chemical reactions yeah. melting together. I mean, in the first couple of seasons, you got a lot more of those sort of slum scenes where you see. Jesse, uh, you know, selling his his product to people, yeah. and you're gonna be, it, it kind of loses track of that as the series goes on, and I, I think that's very purposeful as Walt sort of his empire grows and he becomes less familiar with the effect his drugs are having on mm. people. So I, I think it's very purposefully limited. Um, but you're right, this film doesn't really do much of it either, in the sense that you got you got two opposing groups. And it's very easy on paper to label them as here are the good guys, which are the detectives, mm. and here are the bad guys, which are the drug traffickers. And there is this neo-noir feeling to the whole thing where you're right. There's no true emphasis on the stakes of a lot of this stuff in terms of what the drugs will do to a local society, uh, in terms of the life and death scenarios that the detectives are putting themselves through. There is sort of the stinger at the end, which we will get yeah. into, of course. But I've... I was so yeah fascinated by the the lack of black and whiteness in this film, and I think that's part of the reason when the very the very first thing you see in the film is the 20th Century Fox logo, it goes from monochromatic to color 
Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. Is that sort of a nod to the neo-noir aesthetic of the film? Or is it that thing of this This is a morally grey depiction of these characters? Mm. And, and the thing is, we can talk about Gene Hackman's character, Popeye. He, he's not betrayed as the most, like, heroic figure of the story. He's got a lot of faults. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it adheres to the noir setting. He's, um... He's obviously like an alcoholic. He's um, he's very openly racist and kind of cruel to a lot of people. Yeah, um, you know, and and kind of bounces off Russo quite well because obviously Mm. Russo is this has a wife and kids, and we hear that occasionally with his with Schneider's dialogue where he talks about like he's Mm. being kept away from them, and obviously he's sort of morally corrupt. We we see him overstep his bounds a lot, um, Mm. constantly staying, um, you know having unprofessional like behavior in the yes, workplace, yeah. particularly working with the federal agents. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's trying to encapsulate that. And I think like you said, the ending um, with sort of the seldom success that they mm. achieve is very indicative of, of a noir film, a protagonist kind of getting what they want, but not really getting mm. what they want. You know, it's, it's very much the full stop on this idea that what he's, chasing after isn't necessarily justice but an obsession mm. that sort of stuck with him well it's 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 definitely pressed on and we we only get kind of sort of shards of the background of, of doyle's mm. past that his rash and brash nature has mm. led to officers being killed um through mm. comments made to stir him up and and the fact that that his gut has not in recent times, um, alleviated any success. Right. You know, the conversations that Doyle and and Russo have with the chief where they're like, well, all you've done is bring in these sort of small cases. It's wasted resources and time and and even got people killed. Mm. Um, Even in the opening scene, um, we see Russo get, we we get hurt. Mm. Um, when they're trying to take down a, a sort of a small crook on a tip-off because of basically the um, sloppy coordination and nature of their their dynamic, their less-than-perfect dynamic. Yeah. They're not a well-oiled machine at the start of the Sloppy's film. Sloppy's a really good way to put it. Um, and it's like, does the means justify the ends? Because mm. it's like, you could argue what he's... I mean, he's trying to get drugs off the street. That's heroic. But nothing about his personality or his character or his actions indicate that that really matters to him at all. No. This, yeah, there's so much more going on, not even underneath. It's all very apparent. He's he's very unashamedly chaotic, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's a and it's a, like you said, it's an arrogance and ego clash, and particularly mm. in this case, I mean, it's that shot, it's that big wide shot where he sort of does the nod back to the the Frenchman. I'm trying to remember his name is Chevreur or something. Oh, yes, yes, uh, it's Alan A L A Chanier. Chenier. Um, That's a who, you know, manages to get the better of him and, and gives him like a little nod and and It is a great payoff the wave back. It is, it's that payoff, yeah. but it's also that's the that's the ego there playing out. That's that's what it is. It's not necessarily about we've got you, I'm going to put you away and it's the showmanship behind that yeah. moment because that's a great example right at the end and, and like, yeah, we're gonna jump right into the end, screw it. But the driving question that moment when when they get the car back and the drugs are still hidden in the car 
in the uh, is it like the door carriageway? Like the like you yeah, open the door it's like underneath it's like... the rubber that they sort of have to like. I don't know if it was rubber, but they sort of. But have it's to like where you open the door and you've got that lining between where your like foot goes and the I door. I think so. That's yeah. what I thought it was. Yeah. But the the whole thing is when you see that it's still in there and the deal was going seemingly successful, you know, as an audience, like, oh wait a sec, like this is all playing out as they thought it would. So something, what's going to happen? How how the uh, I mean how have our heroes of the story gone about entrapping them? Mm. Because that's my head going for is oh they put it back in there because they they want to see the deal done before they arrest him, and it wasn't even that it was the showmanship of waiting all the way down the road, and I was shocked that there were no police cars following them behind because that's what led to the shootout is this big state of showmanship that so he could wave at him and get his like I little, got you yeah I got you moment exactly. And did that not just cost the lives of several other police officers mm. because you wanted to catch him that way and not any other way that was significantly smarter? Yeah. <laughs> that's a very fair point. That, yeah. That's exactly it. It it wasn't a clean police operation. You know, mm. we saw you know a film that I was thinking about as we we're watching the meticulous nature of of all of these moving parts trying to yeah. converge was like you know we did the stranger uh, late last yeah. year, early this year, where that's obviously the Sort of the that's a whole entrapment operation about a cop going undercover and trying mm. to entrap someone to confess that they've killed a child, and obviously that was based off real life. But there was the same sort of level of obviously there was that was an exceedingly large operation. This yes. tends to focus mostly on the dynamic between four cops, two federal, and and two uh, like detectives. Brooklyn yeah, detectives, I assume yeah. that yeah, like your New York um undercover cops. So obviously having the the national and then the local sort of police yeah. officer sort of balance. But then even then it's not even like there's obviously that tier below when we we're on the train and the local cop gets shot. Yeah, um, yeah, like the train security guard or I think he's just a cop. That was my but you might be right. He probably who knows. America's got so many guns. <laughs> the mole so, cops. Yeah. <laughs> well I read it was a, I actually read one of the fun facts is that he that was his actual job, and that he just so happened to be a SAG member, so it worked out that he could play that same role in the film. And then, I hope he doesn't get shot in real life as well. But no, no. <laughs> hope he's on the on the picket line. Exactly, still kicking. I yeah. love it. No, it's it, I mean going to all of those scenes where they are sort of coverting each other, and like you said, this feels like a much smaller operation. There's a lot more doubt toward these characters, is because of like you said their past history mm. and their erratic behavior. But that was what blew me away about this film. You're right, how much time is spent on just these wordless cat and mouse sequences on the streets. And what's so impressive is when you read about just how much of this film was done, like on the fly, with no permits, in real locations, with real crowds and real reactions, it just makes it all so much more impressive because it's such great blocking. Not just the blocking of mm. where the characters are walking and how they hide their faces, and but the way the camera... Again, using that scopophilic lens to do these crash zooms through mirrors or through windows. Yeah. And, oh, it's. It, I was so blown away by all of that stuff. Yeah, it, it definitely has such a. Like you said, you brought up like yeah that documentary gritty feel, and it definitely has that element there. There's mm. there's certain sequences that almost feel like you are sort of in there. I mean the. Particularly some of those first-person shots that are so immersive when the car mm. is we're moving through the traffic is yeah. so anxiety-inducing, um, and that's kind of interesting because that kind of broke that 
real realism grit and to go for that sort of high octane action sort of money shot it felt more mm. like it didn't feel as um because it wasn't like it was the driver's perspective or at least right, it was, the camera was mounted to like the hood of the car yeah and maybe that's what they were trying to go for and that was the technical limitations of the time is to create that pov sensation of hackman driving through the the yeah, oncoming like traffic. traffic yeah 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 it's I, I definitely agree with you. That kind of almost takes you out of that documentary feel because it is like, yeah. oh, that camera was clearly placed in that position. Yeah. I mean, but it awards the uh, sort of, like you said, the payoff for all of that surveillance and stuff that kind of actually leads to, well, not really even a dramatic, like not even a, end, a climactic uh, chase sequence. It's essentially just to take out the sort of hitman. He just shoots him. Yeah. <laughs> And it, it does completely, after all of that epicness, it ends quite anticlimactically, doesn't yeah. it? It ends quite real. It almost, it breaks that surreal action nature and brings us back to that gritty reality of just that sort of shootout. Yeah, and I think part of that is that there are no words exchanged. He might call out to him like, from memory, but there's no dramatic monologue of, who sent you? Yeah. It's just a gritty, uncomfortable one-shot tumbles down the stairs, he's out of the game. And the film does that so many times. I don't want to jump ahead in terms of what potentially may be my highlight scene, but there are scenes where there's uh, processes being taken place or, you know, when they're taking down the car and breaking it apart, for example. I think those are so uh, furthered by the fact that there's no music and that it almost creates a unique tone by not having music come Mm. in to make you feel... It's like the senselessness of when they're pulling that car apart. But obviously before we get the, the satisfying result of, oh, there actually is drugs in there. Yeah. But the, a huge portion of the scene in the early parts of it, uh, I feel this sense of like senselessness and like, oh, his obsession is getting the better of him. Mm. And I think if by putting music in there, it might have just played, it might have played it too much in any other direction. Yeah, and it might have made the position of the audience to, you know, definitely emphasize the music in that scene. And, and emphasize the emotions and manipulation that it's trying mm. to make us conceive. Whereas this felt like, like you said, it allows the viewer to sort of process just the desperation yeah, and the need to. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we wait on that Schneider reveal where he's like, "Well, there's a considerable weight difference between these different points in time," and then that leads yeah. to the, "Well, we've got one place left to look." And it was, it was sort of. <laughs> I find some of some of the the dialogues a little janky. Like even that scene, it felt like oh, okay, there was one yeah. place left to look at, but. Okay, what I find really interesting is is just how much of this film mm. it does really base on obviously this obsession with Doyle's perception, Doyle's hunch, and we're obviously between people calling in his hunches into question, yep. except his partner Russo, who's even says at times is is, is sort of just follows his partner because yep. that's that's what you do. You look, you know, you he's a loyal partner, and it's quite interesting seeing someone like yeah, like Rob Schneider be mm. in such a Almost reserved role was a secondary and comparatively, a supplementary role. yeah, yeah. He doesn't really, yeah, he doesn't get those sort of moments to uh, shine. It's not a, a buddy cop film in that sense. I mean, even even the, if his name is Buddy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, it's quite interesting because um, it all comes back to that moment in the nightclub very early on. They're sitting there after they've had this sort of sloppy encounter with sort of a contact that they're trying to get their head around for some reason the three degrees are, are playing i don't know how they got that job <laughs> <laughs> but 
and they just notice the person in the cloud, um, crowd splashing cash. And then we yeah, actually yeah. follow that's the spiral of police officers. It's not like a an officer, like in a lot of buddy cop films or in film cop dramas, is, oh, we need you to check this case. And then it spirals and expands. It was based off this very... Just time this and place, yeah. Time and place, look over interaction, this observation, this gut instinct, oh... Where's he getting that money from? It's interesting because when I, when that scene started and we see it play out extensively as we see them waiting outside, they pull the all-nighter, there's these great, again, like slow zoom and pans with the faraway camera as they're tracking and mm. reversing and turning around and all of that. And I remember thinking, at this point, I wasn't sure how this was going to play into the wider plot. And really, the whole first act, you're wondering how they're going to bridge the storylines between Maselli's and, and Brooklyn. But... I remember thinking at that moment, oh, this is kind of like a Godfather trick. Because my memory from the Godfather is the entire sequence that leads to the horse head in the bed is not necessarily something that drives the plot forward, but mm. is really just like, here's a showcase of the kind of people we're following in this story. Now, obviously, this does go on to aid the plot, because you're right, it is sort of the catalyst that leads him to the wider uh, chase, if you will. But I remember feeling that because there was this, just this elongated surveillance mm. scene... And at this point in the film, I wasn't really... I didn't know that sort of that slice of the film was actually representative of yeah. the entire style of the film. Yeah, There is a great emphasis on observation and, mm. and, and uh, that sort of rigorous pursuit and, and the ability to sort of always keep lying on side of each other. I mean, there's some amazingly blocked scenes mm. um, when they're pursuing... Uh, is it Al or Sal? Sorry. When Sal, they're pursuing yeah. Sal... And there's four officers all yeah. tailing him and they swap in this seamless integration of, of pursuing this one person. And so every cool. time <laughs> one of them is made up, they they rotate and they kind of change and they're chop and change. And it, it sort of to see that play out without any dialogue being mm. exchanged really between the four apart from a couple of... They're like, not like on walkie-talkies, like, oh, south on this street. Yeah. There's nothing like that. Which, that kind of becomes... It's interesting because that's how we see tailing scenes, all those sort of things now, is, yeah. oh, he's coming into your quadrant. And they do that once when they're three of them are in one car and one's in the other and, and, and Doyle loses sight of the car. That's right, but, yep. Um, in that tailing scene, that actual just walking around tailing scene, yeah, they don't. There's no call to actions or anything like that. They just seamlessly in on the job, and they all and we know that both partnerships hate each other, mm-hmm. but it's that doing the job aspect and them all being well, they're all locked in on like a, the same objective. Yeah, and, and it's a really just a really cool block scene, and that's great because it's like that's where the direction comes in in terms of being able to block something like that out, not just the stage blocking, but mm-hmm. then like where's the camera going to go and how's it going to get picked up. You feel like a lot of that wouldn't have been shot off and cordoned off streets too. A lot oh of- God, no! And I, and the more I was looking up, I remember when the, when that sequence starts when they get in the traffic jam on the bridge, and then, um, you know, Popeye comes out and he's like he's hitting the side of the bridge and he runs back in. You could tell it's like, oh yeah, no, they didn't get permission for any of this. These are all real cars in a real traffic jam with real onlookers. Um, and looking at that stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, they virtually got permits for, like, nothing. I think the one permit they got was inside the train for that whole sequence. Yeah, and obviously, like, the chase underneath, you'd assume. Nope. No. No permits. <laughs> so they're just driving against oncoming traffic. Pretty much. That's it's insane. insane. Yeah, no, it's... that's Friedkin's a 
<laughs> he's a madman. He's a madman. Oh, well, that kind of makes sense him. after all this exorcist stuff you hear about. Well, this is the funny thing, and like, it's a good opportunity to talk about that with the exorcist. They are such different films. And I'm not even just talking about the genre, but like in terms of the aesthetic of the films, because you've got something like The French Connection, which is cinema verite and documentary feel and not many permits. And, and yeah, the exorcism had like, or the exorcist had so many baffling behind-the-scenes stories of, oh, God, they couldn't get away with doing that today. Like, mm. the, like the freezer room where everyone was... All the actors were absolutely hyperthermic and, and whatnot. But the that film is so, much, is so layered with style. There's the, the makeup and the visual effects where she's, like, levitating off the bed and there's all the careful sound design, the fact that so many of the noises that Reagan's making are, like, inhuman and, like, mm. a combination of different animal cries and, and English spoken backwards and all sorts of stuff like that which so correlated and and controlled to terrify its audience and mm. here the, comparatively this is like such an effortless film obviously it wasn't but it, it looks effortless mm. in the sense that the camera is very dynamic and documentarian and so like from a directing standpoint it's so impressive that he can create two drastically different types yeah. of films within just a couple of years of each other. Yeah. I think some of the hyper... It's the subtle, more subtle t- touches mm. to it. The fact that in this surveillance, the you know the two that spring to mind is, is sort of at the low point of the characters. They've kind of hit a wall with their case and they're ta- trying to plead to the, to the chief like mm. to give them more time. Is actually like set at a car accident. And yeah. it's one of those a completely irrelevant car accident to the plot. Mm. It's solely that this city is constantly moving, things are constantly happening. It's that city never sleeps aspect. But it's so interesting that this scene where they have this absolute outburst at, at particularly the two federal agents that are yeah. riling Doyle up. It's happening in this very sensitive scene with dead bodies and yeah, yeah, and no, it's, it's just, a great detail. It's a very like you know. You see that scene a thousand times. Oh, the road cops are off the case. Yeah. But it's always in an office. <laughs> you know, the chief is not someone who's out in the field. Not until he's normally the, the climax the of the film. the desk, yeah. Yeah. It's like, but this has just got that sort of... It, things are constantly happening. Like, mm. and I love that. And then even when they're, they're sort of sleeping out for the Cadillac for something to happen and, and the drugs to be collected... These guys come by to trying to steal the hubcaps off the cars. <laughs> you know? That's the perfect visual juxtaposition, that nighttime steam-filled alleyway in Brooklyn. Yeah. That's the perfect juxtaposition to Maselli's, of course, where the film starts. It's so much more beautiful and colourful, and I don't think we see any scenes there at night. No, not in, not in uh, France. Not in France, yeah. Which I sh- it looks like Nice, to be honest. Like the, oh, okay, the I thought that was, the, that was the legend that came up at the start. Is it Nice? No, no, Maselli's. Oh, Marseille. Oh, it's probably right. Oh, Marseille. Marseille, sorry. Yeah, probably. Um, I only have Tony Hawk to go off of in terms oh, of the, the spelling. I've been looking at French cities, obviously. Oh, they're very good, very good. I'm going to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heavens. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. And I, what's I, so great as well is that opening scene there is it's so indicative of the rest of the film because you immediately get with that with this character who you at the time you would just assume oh that's your protagonist unless you know that Gene Hackman is your protagonist but mm. you otherwise you're following this detective again the camera's doing all these pans and zooms that sort of it, it's simulating this idea of them staring at each other and the whole tracking and, and following and I love that it's all ever present in the opening scene mm. and again no dialogue 
until the guy's just shot and very violently shot as yeah. well. So I, I think it's quite that. interesting too, you know, you take uh, to reinforce that neo-noir aspect even more, you know, you've got Charnier who is this very charismatic kind of el- older Frenchman and yep. and who, you know, has this this opening scene where apart from obviously yeah, like you said, this this agent being shot by his hitman, not even by Shani himself. It, mm-hmm. We see him going back to his estate. He's got this significantly younger wife, yep. but <laughs> who they end up talking about his daughter, and he seems to have this really positive relationship with his daughter, with mm. assumably, obviously, not the woman he's currently with. I would assume yeah. very much. The, it doesn't and, sound like it. You're no, right, it doesn't. But it, but there's a very positive. It's a very nice, charming sort of. Uh, romantic moment yeah. on the, the sort of like, yeah, the Marseille sort of They're giving each and, other the gifts and, yeah. And that just reinforces it more, the fact that your antagonist is this sort of uh, likeable... Um, Very suave. Suave, yeah, charismatic man. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, really for me, never loses that. No, exactly. And for me, that that's, again, juxtaposing it to, to the life that he ends up leaving leading very shortly in America is is when he is being chased by the cops in that final scene and like how desperate he the fact that he's running along with everyone else there it's just that juxtaposition there where it, you're right his personality never changes but it's like in this one moment in time he's like a rat amongst other rats mm. scouring away you know for safety and I love just that moment and of course he allegedly gets away at the end yeah He's, we don't know where he's interesting go title cards hey it kind of yeah. gives that sense of authenticity doesn't it yeah i guess that's what they were going for because it was it was jarring and it was like oh okay and it even starts with some characters that you kind of forgot were even <laughs> relevant to the story but i think you're right it's gone for that documentary feel it's going for that you know that that gritty realism of like oh I, not not all of this is necessarily satisfying yeah okay heroes are being sort of reassigned our main villain has disappeared without a trace and that has a lot of implications about the final sound effect in the film i'm just having a a weird flashback flash forward moment in my brain because i remember i won't say which film it was but there was a local film where my suggestion to them was your film's going to make so much more thematic sense and be so much more clever if you just added a gunshot sound effect on the last shot like out of frame and I'm realizing, like, oh god, I just told them to make the French connection <laughs> without realizing it. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, the cut to the cut to black gunshot is a nice mm. way to finish. And there's a lot of films that kind of follow there's that ambiguity there as to who fired that shot, and because it puts doubt in you. If okay, well, if both characters, you know, if Gene Hackman's character and then the the villain were trying to chase this whole movie, they're both allegedly still alive in the the end title credits. Mm. Then what? What was that gunshot? It's just interesting. Unfortunately, that answer is. Oh, of, is it really it's French connection too? Yeah, I did. You know what? <laughs> there is French connection oh, too. No, you're right. There is two. Oh my god. Um. So did, did he direct it as well? Was there a different director? No, I believe it, was it doesn't not, look like it. But it's Hackman again, though. Yes, yes. Doyle returns. Too. So oh unfortunately, your Doyle answer. Returns. Your. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, it's, it's, but you know, clearly this film, like you said, because of 
things such as its its car chase scene and stuff, people gravitated to this film a lot. Frankenheimer, three point four on Letterboxd. Do not. That's, That's a pretty decent score. Not a bad sequel. For this kind of... I mean, you, you certainly don't think about the 2001 Space Odyssey sequel in the same light. <laughs> Which, yes, does exist. Oh, my God. I can't believe it does. Yeah, that's it's absolutely nuts. Um, and what, the, what What's surprising to me about that is, again, this is sort of in an era, early 70s, where we are seeing the birth, the rebirth of the auteur filmmaker. Yeah. So, But then again, you got Jaws sequels as well, and it's not like Spielberg directed those, and... Yeah, I, I think yeah. we we always should just judge the film in isolation, even if it oh, has a course, sequel. Yeah. Um, clearly, the sequel is, is a monetary um, aspect, just mm. as Jaws two was. Whereas, so it's very easy to view the the single film. And like you said, there is an ambiguity there. Which one did shoot first? In the context, obviously, after Han the fact, did. Yes, um, <laughs> we can always be like, oh, well, we now know there's, there's a connection too, but you don't know that at the time when the film comes out. So, yeah, yeah there's that ambiguity, which once again adds to that neo-noir um, aspect. Absolutely, you know, it's, yeah. You know, the fact that often our protagonist doesn't come out the same way. They don't always necessarily die, but mm. they normally don't get what they want, and they normally have quite a unsatisfying ending. I'm honestly surprised, um, yeah, of how engaging this film is, given the fact that at times it's incredibly minimalist and subdued it's, and quiet. very, very thin plot or very simple plot. Yeah. Um, yeah, and again, the character arcs, like you said, it's more just kind of the downward spiral of morality, but even then it's like, it's really only showcased by the fact that he kills, you know, one of the, one of the FBI agents he's been working with the whole film, and it's not that he killed him or by accident, it's the fact that he's not phased by it whatsoever. Mm. He's just like, oh, wrong person, still going to chase him. And and like we said, we know so much about his character and his background, all the, the pieces that we do know of it, infer that this isn't some miraculous character change. This is something that was inside him all along. Is this even the first time he's done something like this? Mm. So it's it's very interesting from that standpoint. But you're right. The fact that the film is so engaging, purely just off blocking, editing, perf- wordless, dialogueless performances, it's it it really is a revelatory film from that sense, and it really does predate a lot of the films you would categorize as some of the best yeah. of the seventies. Um, yeah, he did a fantastic job. Zeke, what's your highlight scene? Ooh. Um, I do like the the first ever like the Doyle um sort of Shania pursuing scene. Um yeah. where obviously we get that first kind of nod. because um, it has that sequence of them both getting on and off the train. Oh, that's so good. And that's sort of that wit and sort of the way they work each other out in that scene is really good and the the way there's a lot of fantastically blocked mm. uh, stalking scenes. I don't yeah. think you're ever gonna see a film do the sort of stalking the prey like that again. Yeah. I just don't think it's as authentic or good in any other film. I mm. think, like I said, a lot of it gets broken up by these sort of exposition di- and dialogue, expositional yeah. diegetic, like, Oh, they're over here. They're over there. Or yep. they'll cut to like a CCTV. Like there's so many other elements that they've added in now to the, the stalking scene. Yeah. Um, drone shots, everything like mm. there's so much more added into it now that, the simple tailing scene is no longer simple and it's uh, Assassin's Creed elegance. It, it's, um, no, it's a really good point. And it's like, I don't think I've even appreciated until I finally saw this film today, 
26 years old that the majority of chase scenes or tailing scenes out there are littered with just unnecessary dialogue and exposition and I mean, right the flashy camera it's this film proves none of that is needed i mean you you a couple of weeks ago were talking about mission impossible and how yeah. much that was littered with that sort of stuff and that's very normal the same yeah. thing happened in the fast and furious franchise pretty much any modern day spy film is has got that level of sort of hand holding yeah, yeah to its audience and it doesn't trust the process whereas like i said at times, I mean, the one-on-one um, tailing was great, but they added into as many as five people in a tailing sequence yeah. that seamlessly transitioned between each other. And did it ever get lost or murky or tough to follow? No, it was actually all incredibly easy to follow. And I think that that is a test. That's one of the key sort of foundational pillars of why this film is, is so, like you said, revolutionary and yeah. and, and so important in the neo-noir genre, it's mm. definitely at the forefront of one of the most effective it, examples of it. It feels like a, a bit of a forefront film for the neo-noir genre, and I, I say this purely just because it's post haste Code. Yeah. You have genres, in the, uh, the you have noirs in the 30s and 40s, yeah. and then this, we're only jumping into the 70s now. That's not that much further along in the timeline where you do create, okay, this is what Neo yeah. looks like, and that's why I think the colour changes in the opening logo and and the arc archetypes and the spiraling down spiraling story are also recognizable. Yeah, the only other film I can think that has a a, a good tailing sequence mm. that's not littered with all that stuff is Blade Runner from that neo noir. Yeah, they've okay. got two the yeah. sort of in that midpoint of the film. They've got those really good sort of Deckards kind of looking through. Particularly, I think when he's hunting down, I can't remember the android's name, Which, but yeah, yeah, um, he ends up going into a, a dance club and imitating, I think, a photographer, if I remember, right. or something like that. But um, listen yeah. to our discussion, episode one hundred and twenty-five. Blade yes. Runner. is it actually? Yeah, that's wild. That is, we've almost doubled that. We've almost doubled that. No, we almost sick. Have doubled that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's crazy. What about you, Jake? Um. I like, like I said, the opening scene is fantastic. It's so deceptive, mm. which is the whole film is deceptive in so many ways, which I love. But it has to be the the them tearing apart the dirty car scene. Like I said, it's just the fact that there is no music kind of gives it its own sense of uh, tone and you, the sense of um, pointlessness, like we talked about earlier. But the reason it really stuck out to me as well is because I actually compared it to two scenes, one from Breaking Bad and one from Better Call Saul, that are very similar. In Breaking Bad, it's the scene where they're tearing down and breaking apart the motorcycle mm. of a Drew Sharp's motorcycle. And, and it's so eerie and creepy and the music is beautifully done in that scene. Uh, but the one that more so reminds me of the scene is there's a scene in uh, Better Call Saul where Mike, he's convinced that there's a tracker in his car. So he takes it to a local junkyard and it's just this like seven, eight minute scene, uh, a montage of him just breaking this car apart yeah, very much like this, uh, this film. But it's use of music. It's kind of more energetic, and it has that very Breaking Bad montage yeah. feel to it, where it is energetic and come somewhat exciting. And and it again, this film does something that I very rarely see: is just play a scene like that straight, and and edited with no music and in a way that feels kind of tedious and almost boring. Um, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. The French Connection is currently out on Disney Plus and it wide is. release. It is, yeah. Damn, and I, I had to go ahead and cancel the Disney Plus, didn't I? 
That's all right. I think I can help you out with that. But speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near you? Well, I will give a shout to Disney Plus while we're at it. Because this week they're releasing a 4K restoration of the original 1950s Cinderella. And by golly, is this not what Disney Plus is perfect for? Is this kind of stuff? It's probably the the thing, isn't it? This is what it should be about. And, And look, they're obviously doing it now. That's fantastic. But like... It's this is it's perfect. They have all the money in the world to restore these classics in beautiful high definition and sound quality. And just uh, don't tell the girl who's playing Snow White. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, look. We it's funny because when we did West Side Story, we did Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. We thought one of the two leads were problematic. It, it might be maybe both of them are a bit problematic, but. <laughs> Somehow, I, I I love someone who can just terminate their career like that. Quickly. It's so bizarre to me because I f- so from I under- as I understand these comments that she's made in interviews are like the Disney, a year old. They were yeah, they're old. They're old. I think people are just kind of like resurfacing them and realizing like that's a weird thing to say. Yeah, I guess a lot of other things. This thing though, the world is a noisy echo chamber. Yes, things get lost and then some things get put to the forefront and then they they are the main center of an echo and mm. yeah i mean but if you listen to it like her comments you you kind of sit there and go it comes back to the why would you do that exactly that, that was my like, main take was why would you even accept the job if you hate the source material so much and i don't i don't by default actually think that's a bad idea i like the idea of someone directing adaptation mm. of something they actually hate because it means they might create something that's like really really interesting that's not what's happening here because she's not materially writing and directing the film herself. She's just calling the classic, the, an absolute classic in cinema history, the first animated feature of its time, first animated film to win an Oscar. It's a deeply, you know, deeply personal story to so many people. Mm. And it's not even just that she's trashing the original story. She's just exaggerating aspects of it. Like, oh, the prince was a stalker and... You know, she yeah. and this is the this is I got to get this in Z card because I was I was actually me and Bethany were talking about this ironically the other day. Okay, because I generally don't know anyone who was like I agree with what she's saying. It feels like she's yelling what people think she thinks people want to hear, but not yeah, quite. It is quite interesting, isn't it? Because you, you're probably correct. I the reason I say that the like when I heard her comments, I went. But why would you say that? It's more like, why would you do that to your own career? Like, you're going it's to be... So weird. You can't put that out in the ether and expect the reply to be, yeah, I agree with you. Let's just burn all of that stuff down. Like, I just... There's so many people that are going to be rejecting that comment. And they're going to... And then, thus, they're not going to see your product or they're mm. going to constantly hate on your product before it even... Like you said, people have already judged that film being made before it's made and produced, right? Yeah. Um and these are the most money orientated people ever, Disney people. So what are they going to do? They're probably going to either can the project completely, or they'll they'll just put it out on the streaming platform. Or the streaming platform won't even around. It might be like that Moon film we were talking about. What was oh, that yeah. called? What was that called? I don't know because it was around for a week. Oh, and then Crater. 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 Sorry, Rip Crater. Never forget. And, uh, this podcast is the only place where you're going to hear about Crater. But that's what I mean. It's it, a big conspiracy theory. It might end up being in the same <laughs> category. It might get $100 million thrown in and then go, nah, tax write-off. I, See you later. I feel like Disney will commit to the full theatrical and they're just going to damage control the living hell out of the situation. That, that's the vibe I get. 
from it. But what I wanted to say that was so ironic is that she's going on about, you know, oh, how dare Snow White, her aspiration as a 14-year-old girl was to fall in love, which is, you know, apparently is so bad now. Um, but then she immediately follows it up with, no, her real motivation is becoming the the warrior or the leader that her dad told her to be. T- let me quote that again. Her dad told her, so a man's telling her what she wants in life. How is that any, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to say stuff like that, be be proper about like, passive but it. Passive progressivism. At the end of the day, these are people that get exposed and put on podiums and we take... As a populace, the general populace, we often take celebrities word for law. Like, we do put them on that pedestal. We enable them to sit on that pedestal. Mm. Um, and their exposure, obviously, it goes both ways. It leads them to intense scrutiny and it leads to them developing massive egos and making themselves feel untouchable. And you I know, feel like this is a weird case because she's been in so few films, though. Like, I understand about an actor who's been on a platform for 20 years... But I think I think it's just a whole other level with with Rachel mm. Z- Z- Zegler, Rachel Zegler. Yeah, you're you're probably yeah. right. But I think untouchability is just untouchable. I mean, she got Oscar nominated, right? I yeah, I believe so. Uh, for some people, that's all they need: one yeah. Oscar nod, and they're on a on the moon. It doesn't matter if they've yeah. been in ten, a hundred films or two. I mean, yeah, uh, okay. fair enough. You're now saying in that particular year, she was one of. Was it six people that get nominated? Five. five that get nominated. In, in her category. In her category. So there's one of five people. So she is the, in the best five of that person of that year in the most popular the, film yeah. award. Quote unquote I wouldn't even say prestigious. I would say, say popular is what I would say. <laughs> I think prestige comes is, from other, other film festivals. But yeah. it is interesting. But it, it show, it's quite funny, isn't it? Yeah. How, how the echo chamber works. But it hasn't seemed to have... I, I, From a general populist point of view, asking mm. just general people, from a, they don't seem to care that much about the writer strike stuff. I, I think us film people are behind it and, sure. and endorse it, but the average Joe just doesn't seem to be as invested. They, they're still well, get, it's struggling to get past the... I don't blame people for not being invested. I mean, I mean it's we're, we're invested because we love film and yeah. we, we understand what it's like to be in that industry. Most people don't, so of course they're not invested in it. I hate the the, the willful ignorance yeah, that comes with the well, oh well they're all millionaires anyway. Yeah, it's like that, well that's the no they're not. Me. Um, that's the part that kind of frustrates me. But but otherwise, I I mean the thing the thing that people do argue the reason is that th- this is sort of the pedestal example of what happens here will affect other industries. It's not just Hollywood that are on strike. There's truckers out there going on strike. There's fast food service going on strike. And if Hollywood can't win their strike, then none of the workers in these other industries will as well. And it will have a knockoff worldwide effect. Mm. So I think that's the main reason that this is somewhat important to everyone, not just film people. Mm. But it's. I mean, that's a deep rabbit hole as well. I don't expect everyone to be in- invested. You're right. Invested, you don't have to be invested. But ignorant, please don't be ignorant. Yeah. I think it's a good way to sum it up. And that's what's coming to Disney Plus this week. <laughs> <laughs> Just gives uh, me so mad. I know. Yeah, God, we got to you know, we gotta inform people in podcast week. Uh, we've got films like Joyride coming to Stan, which mm-hmm. feels very quick, but hey. Interesting. Uh, Operation Fortune comes to Amazon Prime Video, as well as Fisherman's Friends 2 and the sexy book adaptation of Beautiful Disaster. It's like that after series. Or Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a whole new oh, thing. 
Uh, we've got 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street coming to binge, as well as the recent found footage digital film Missing, which I thought was excellent. Everyone should watch that. As well as Charlotte Webb's modern classic After Sun. That's a film we absolutely should do on the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And again, I got rid of binge recently, so I'm I'm reaping what I sow, Z, but I'm I'm putting my foot down. I'm making a stand. Uh, and coming to Netflix this week, you have You Are So Not Invited to My Bar Mitzvah, which these two best friends who've always dreamed of their epic bar mitzvahs are threatened by a popular boy in middle school drama into destroying their friendship and rite of passage. Is it like a good boys? Um, or is it more yeah, I think It's probably a little more book smart-esque, maybe. But I will read you the cast. It stars Adam Sandler, Jackie Sandler, Sadie Sandler, and Adina Menzel for some reason. Oh, it's gonna be a Sandler comedy. <laughs> oh! <laughs> That's his wife and daughter in the film, which is really bizarre because I don't think his wife is playing his wife in the film. No, because he it's... needs someone who's twenty years younger. Exactly. <laughs> Eighteen sizes. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if Sadie Sandler first off that's a great name Sadie Sandler that's like a name from Red Dead Redemption I love it yeah Um, but I don't know if she's been in other other things before this, this is like her acting I mean, debut you know what I actually I will fully endorse a dad wanting to get her if his child wants to get in on the acting yeah yeah it's like Francis Ford doing it there you 50 go. years earlier there you go and thank god she moved to directing <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't hate I didn't hate her performance in Godfather Part Three. I'm just I'm I'm feeding into the narrative Zeke. She's an amazing director. She is, and I'm extremely excited for her film Priscilla, which will be five thousand times better than the Elvis film. Well said. Well right. said. Yes. Uh now coming to cinemas. Oh boy. <laughs> Alright. So Sound of Freedom is coming to Australian cinemas this okay. week. Have you, do you know what Sound of Freedom is? No. Today? Okay. Prepare yourself. So, the Sound of Freedom is a true story of a former government agent turned vigilante who embarks on a dangerous mission to rescue hundreds of children from sex traffickers. So. Okay. My introduction to this film... So, this came out domestically, as in came out in the US, around the same time as Barbenheimer did. Okay. So, every time I would see a post about Barbie or Oppenheimer or the amount of money either of them was making or yada, 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 I would see just spam comments, just absolute spam littering those posts with, what about Sound of Freedom? Why aren't you talking about Sound of Freedom? This is propaganda. Why are you talking about Sound of Freedom? I'm like, what on earth is this bloody movie? So, like I said before, it's a sex trafficking film and there's this whole thing where apparently it's like, there's ties to the, the the QA non-movement, which is its own little American political rabbit hole about okay. government people actually being sex traffickers. I really could not... It, it, is it like it, a meme to be like Santa Freeman? Was it a meme culture thing? I don't was think it it's... A, uh, there are, like a, I've seen like a meme about it. You know okay. what I mean? But like it was just like this weird cult mentality, herd mentality, that it just showed up everywhere. And like, oh, why aren't you talking about the real numbers, you know? Sound of free. I think it's like a right-wing thing where it's like, oh, Barbie and Oppenheimer represent the left-wing films. But it's like, look at this right-wing film is also doing really well and the media won't talk about it. I think it's like a thing like that. Now, the film does have a very impressive domestic box office, $175 million. That is very impressive for what seems like an indie film that came out during Barbenheimer. Now, there's also this thing about fake ticket purchases. I believe there were a bunch of churches in the US that started a pay-it-forward system so people could buy in mass 
giant amounts of tickets to this film, which resulted in a lot of empty theaters. So there was this whole conspiracy of people in TikTok filming empty theaters, being like, ah, see, this was the sold-out session, but I walked in, and the, the seats are all empty. Okay. So, like, there's this weird conspiracy theory about that as well. It's just bizarre, Zeke. And I really don't know where to... So, it's obviously has an international release now because we're getting it over here. Um, is the film any good or not? I think it's very divisive. I think it's very divisive. It's got well. a 3.3 on the box. Okay. But is, is it a lot of, like, spikes in the lower end, spikes at the high end? Is it that kind of thing? Yes. So, it's like a Last Jedi thing. So, we're gonna... We're gonna You're getting uh, one star and five star reviews. A lot of fives, a lot of fours, and then a lot of halves. Okay. 1.1 on the halves, mm. 3.7 on the fives. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's um, it's a mess. And and I, as soon as I saw that pop up in a Hoyt screen, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> we got to get into that. All right, let's talk about some other films. Uh, we got the first Slam Dunk, which is a Japanese animated sports film about a high school basketball team. And uh, I watched the trailer. It kind of has this interesting... It's like a Magnus... A ma- manga. Manga-styled like rotoscoped Apollo 10.5-esque animation style. Mm. So it seems really interesting that coming that's coming to cinemas. Uh, there are also some one-time preview screenings this week, including for A24's Past Lives, which sees Nora and Hey Sun, two deeply connected childhood friends, wrestled apart in an early age, reunite 20 years later for one fateful week. That sounds like our kind of film, Zeke. Yeah. I like that. Comes to Luna Leaderville on Thursday the 24th. I'm sure it will go wider later this month or um oh it's the 21st that's probably accurate later this yeah. month uh we've also got disney's haunted mansion based on the theme park ride that's uh, on sunday the 27th at hoyt's southlands specifically southlands. Just it southlands it is a good hoyt's though i will give them that uh and also uh usually i wouldn't shout these kinds of double features out but i wanted to because next monday the 28th at luna you've got a double feature for before sunrise and before sunset back to back damn that's next. That's next Monday. So we're gonna we're gonna be talking about a, a different film while yeah. that's playing, unless we reschedule. But yeah. maybe we'll see. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's everything coming to streaming and cinemas next or this week, I should say. Yeah. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. Mm. But Jake, we are watching a new film. We are. But what are we watching? So while we're at the cinemas and next door, they're playing Sound of Freedom. <laughs> We're to an empty screening. We're going to be watching a little old Wes Anderson film called Asteroid City. You're not here. We're not there. The car exploded. Come get the girls. I have to stay here with Woodrow. I'm not the chauffeur. I'm the grandfather. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. Junior stargazers and space cadets. Each year, we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Set in a fictional American desert town, Sarah, 1955, the itinerary of a junior stargazer and space cadet convention, organized to bring together students and parents from across the country for fellowship and scholarly competition is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events. Are you ready to watch this film? I think so. I hope so. That's good. That's good. I'm haunted by the French Dispat music on, on all these Instagram TikTok things, but to be fair, that score is criminally underrated and should have been nominated for an Oscar, 
and probably should have won. I think probably Dune took its place. Um, we both love the French Dispatch. We both stand the hell out of it. So I am absolutely. It's modern art. For this one. Do you yeah. get it? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I'm excited That's for this. It's been in our cinemas for a good couple of weeks now. Yeah, it's just been a busy couple of weeks. Yeah, isn't it? Obviously, having Andy on the show last week is it obviously yep. a director's corner, which Wes was one of the early directors, number four, I believe. Yes, twentieth um, episode with Bottle Rocket. So um, there was no real place to slot it. Obviously, Barbie and, and Oppenheimer prior to that. So. Has been a, yeah wow it's been quite busy. It's uh it's only fair that we give Wes a go. Obviously mm. this will be his fifth film on the show I think. Oh sick. god you're probably right yeah we've done obviously we did Bottle Rocket, uh, French Dispatch, Fantastic Mr. Fantastic Fox. Mr. Fox, and Grand Budapest. I don't think we've ever done Grand Budapest. Really? No I don't wow. think so. Moonrise. Moonrise. Oh we done Moonrise Kingdom you're right. So this, so would, this be would be our fifth perfect. There we go. So until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Jake. And I was Zeke. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll catch you next week with Asteroid City. Oh, (laughs) What happened there? I had a stroke. (laughs) Oh, good, good. (laughs) What's my name? (laughs) 